Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 20, or no, 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke 24 is last week. Luke chapter 9. If you remember, uh, as we, before we uh, went into our time of Lent and Easter, uh, we were walking through the Gospel of Luke, which we actually started at the beginning of last year. And we're going to go back to that uh, in Luke chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you if you'd like to follow along. And we're going to look at a story that if you've grown up in and around the church, even if you haven't, you might be somewhat familiar with this story because it's the only one that exists in all four Gospels. It says this in verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Jesus replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for the crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now this story really presents us with a problem. And the problem is that there's 5,000 plus people that seem to be pretty hungry. But not to worry, the disciples have their solution for the problem. Now, it's no secret that we live in a world that's filled with problems. I suspect that if I asked you or asked any group of people, are there problems in our world, the resounding answer would be, of course there's problems in our world. I mean, you might say things like climate change. You might talk about the war in Ukraine and now the war that's brewing in Sudan. You might talk about the Middle East. You might talk about the political divisions we have in our world. 
You might talk about the Broncos over the last four years. Whatever it is, you would name problems because they're there and we see them. If I were to say, are there problems in our city? You might talk about the affordable housing crisis. You might talk about the asylum seekers who are being bused here by other states and this way our city is responding to it. You might talk about some of the violence that's occurred in our local high schools here in Denver. You might point to certain things in particular neighborhoods. Whatever it is, yes, of course there's problems. If I were to ask, are there problems in your life? I'm sure you would have a list from small to big problems that you're dealing with. Nobody would say, we live in a problem-free world, or I've lived a problem-free life, or we live in a problem-free city. And if I asked you, well, what are the solutions to those problems? Well, I think the answers would start to vary to that question. I mean, some would no doubt reflect the fact that they've thought a lot about this, they bring a lot of understanding to it, and they would suggest that the problems are these few things. Some might point to research and say, well, research has been done on this problem, and then they would be able to then point to programs or other solutions that have been offered to the problems, and they would say, this is what can be done. Some would say, I can't really help you one bit. I have no idea. But then, if I asked, what can you do about the problem? What can you do to bring solutions? What can I do? I think that's probably where you'd get the fewest answers. Because in my experience, a lot of people feel somewhat powerless to do anything about the real problems in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our city, and in our world. What can you do? This is the question that's posed to the disciples when they see 5,000 plus people hungry. Now Luke begins in chapter 9 telling us that Jesus sends the disciples out to go to the surrounding towns and villages and to heal the sick and to cast out unclean spirits and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And so they go. And he says, when you go, if someone welcomes you into their home, stay there. But if someone doesn't welcome you, shake the dust of the town off your feet as a sign of judgment on them and keep going. So they go and then it says they come back and they're telling Jesus all the things that have happened. I imagine there was some excitement. There were probably some questions. There were probably someone sharing a story and their traveling partner going, well, that's not exactly how it happened. Whatever it is, they're reporting back to Jesus, and Jesus says to them, hey, let's get away by ourselves for a little bit, and he heads to a town called Bethsaida. Now, on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, there were a lot of small towns, but Bethsaida was on the northeastern corner of the uh, Sea of Galilee, which means it was on the other side of the Jordan River from the other small towns. So it was a little bit away and it was a little more difficult to get to. The name Bethsaida means the house of fishers or the house of fishermen. And archaeologists have actually, in their excavations, uncovered a lot of fishing equipment in that town on the eastern side of the Jordan River. This is where Jesus and his disciples go. And apparently their hope was to have some time to themselves Maybe Jesus wanted to hear what happened when they, had, when they had been sent out and reflect with them and give them some teachable moments. But you know how it is in small towns, for those of you who grew up in, in them. 
people love to talk. And they love to talk about what's happening in their town. And they love to talk about other people in their town. Am I right? How many of you grew up in a small town? Which is to say, how many of you grew up in Iowa, right? You're like, Sioux City's pretty big. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah, people love to talk. You know how it is. They're going to say something about so-and-so to so-and-so. But the reality is one of the things that people who like to gossip never really think about is this. People who enjoy hearing the gossip also love to talk about it. This is why word always gets out. If you say to someone, I have something to tell you, but you can't tell anyone. And they're like, oh, sure, of course. Bad sign. Keep your mouth shut because it's going to spill out. This is seemingly what happens. They go to Bethsaida, and in no time flat, everyone finds out where they went. Now, Bethsaida was one of the smaller towns in the north of Galilee, which means that when all of these people show up, Luke tells us it's 5,000 men. Many scholars presume that it was probably closer to seven to 10,000 because you also need to add in women and children who were with them, which means the town is absolutely swelled, probably 10, 15, 20 times its population. And what's interesting, it says, when they show up, Jesus welcomes them. Jesus told the disciples, go out into the surrounding towns, and when you show up at a house, if they welcome you, stay there. But if they don't welcome you, then shake the dust of the town off your feet as a symbol to them. So Jesus here is practicing what he preaches. The crowd show up. It says he welcomes them. He speaks to them about the kingdom of heaven, and he heals those who need healing. And he seemed to be in absolutely no hurry. This is why it says it's all of a sudden late in the afternoon, or more literally, evening is approaching. And the disciples say, uh, hey, this town doesn't have the resources needed to both house this crowd and to feed this crowd. And so we know, Jesus, that we're on the eastern side of the Jordan River and that they probably are going to have to go to the surrounding towns. Why don't we send them away now so that before it's dark, they can find some food and a place to stay? Luke is already tipping his hand a little bit about who's got the better idea. Jesus welcomes. They're saying, send them away, which means they are the ones. They are the ones who are not welcoming, and so those people should shake the dust of the disciples off their feet. Send them away, Jesus. What's the problem? 5,000 plus hungry people. What's the solution? Send them away into the nearby towns. That way they can figure it out on their own. Jesus, though, isn't buying their solution. He says, ah, nah, you give them something to eat. Which I kind of feel like Jesus is poking the bear here a little bit. You ever notice how we remove the humanity from the Bible a lot? Like Jesus is just always this stoic, like, you give them something to eat. Like if Jesus spoke like that, first of all, no one would follow him because they'd be like, that creepy guy, bizarre. <laughs> I think he would probably was like messing with them. No, you give them something to eat. And their response is this. Well, we only have five loaves and two fish. 
Now, loaves of bread in that area of the world, we know, were about eight inches in diameter and about an inch thick. You have at least 12 hungry teenage boys being the disciples, which means the five loaves and two fish would not come near would not be near enough to satisfy their hunger, let alone 5,000 plus people. This is why they're like, hey, we only have five loaves and two fish. And then they say this, or we could go into the surrounding towns and buy food for everybody, which is sarcasm in the first century Israeli sense. In other words, we don't have that kind of money. I love the fact, by the way, that there's teenagers, you know, like when someone said that, they were like, oh, nice one, like fist bump, like we got you, Jesus. Oh, this is fantastic. What's their response? We don't have enough. We don't have enough. In other words, there's nothing we can do. Aren't we so much like the disciples? There's nothing we can do. We kind of almost have resigned ourselves in the midst of the problems in our world, in our lives, in the lives of those we love. We don't have enough. And if you're a church-going kind of person, you're like, well, I mean, Jesus is here. So you know what? Maybe he'll do something. As a matter of fact, I'm going to pray that Jesus will do something. Then we can just sit back and watch and then like sing some praise songs. That'll be great. Because I don't have enough. I can't do anything. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll put out a tweet about thoughts and prayers because that's incredibly effective. That was sarcasm too in the 21st century sense. (laughs) I know what I'll do. I'll post my outrage because when people see my outrage on social media, it really makes an effective difference in our world and changes minds. That's what I'll do. I know what I'll do. I'll talk to people who already agree with me and we'll just keep bitching about the problems in our world as a way of like naming them brings solutions. What are we really saying? We, we can't do anything. We don't have enough. It's interesting. This comes from a mindset of scarcity, which seems to be running rampant in our world. Lynn Twist in her incredible book called The Soul of Money says this about scarcity. She says, for me and many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough rest. We don't have enough exercise. We don't have enough work. We don't have enough profits. We don't have enough power. We don't have enough wilderness. We don't have enough weekends. Of course, we don't have enough money ever. We're not thin enough, we're not pretty enough, or fit enough, or educated, or successful enough, or rich enough, ever. Before we even sit up in bed, before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with the litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack, this mantra of not enough carries the day and becomes a kind of default setting for our thinking about everything. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. We don't have enough. I don't have enough. 
You don't have enough. There's 5,000 people here. Count them. Five loaves, two fish. And there's no way we have the money to go buy food. Now, in the first century setting, especially in a place like Bethsaida in the north part of Galilee, which we know through a lot of research and archaeological digs, was not a wealthy place, we can objectively look at the situation and go, yeah, I can understand that they wouldn't have enough. But I think this idea of scarcity and not having enough and we can't do anything seems to be more a human condition than particular to that time frame. And here's why I say that. We still culturally have this idea we don't have enough. And I hear this in conversations all the time. I say this in conversations all the time. I don't have enough. I don't know what I can do. There's nothing I can do. And I wonder, why is it that we live in, historically, the wealthiest, most powerful empire ever in the history of the world? And yet, somehow, we still say we don't have enough. Why is that? The answer to that question and more after these messages. I'm a New York hotel. I'm looking for someone who likes to be in the middle of it all. You hungry? I know a place. It's the city that never sleeps. But hey, if you need the rest, I've got you covered. Heavy duty pulling power to conquer the high road or the off road. The GMC Sierra Heavy Duty. Premium and capable. That's professional grade from GMC. BK Muscle here, everyone say cheese Classic bacon and spicy Flame grilled double on a toasted bun With the caramelized onions, now I want one BK, have it your way I love that we both got an awesome network And saved money doing it I know, $25 I love that it's guaranteed for three years Switch and get Welcome Unlimited for $25 a line. Guaranteed for three years. Verizon. So when we left the sermon, we had asked the question, why do we have this pressing sense that we don't have enough? Well, maybe because the central message in our culture today is more. Well, I already have two of those. Yeah, but you don't have three. Oh, I already have one. Yeah, but you don't have this one. You see, we live in a world where we are bombarded by a pervasive and consistent message that says this. What you have isn't enough. You need more. And once you get what we're selling, you know what else you need? More. How many of you, like your friend pulls out a cell phone and you're like, is that an iPhone 11? <laughs> oh, okay, good to know. As you sit there on your iPhone 14, looking up when the iPhone 15 will be released, there's a sense of what you have isn't enough. What you need is more. And this is everywhere in our lives. It's everywhere you look. It's on the highways and byways. It's on your television screens. It's on the ads of the articles that you look at. It's when you scroll through social media. More, 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 more. The marketing researcher Jonas Sachs says this about the way that we live in our world. He says, we see 3,500 ads every day, and the majority of them tell, them, tell us, you suck. 
And if you don't buy our product, you're not going to be rich enough, smart enough, hot enough. So we walk around being told 3,500 times a day how deficient and lame we are. You need more. Now, some people would be like, oh, no, the advertisements don't do anything to me. Really? Then why is it that you have a billion-dollar industry who does market research constantly about the way that we respond to advertisements, and they keep doing them? They're not stupid. Martin Lindstrom, another marketing expert, says we actually become numb to these, and we're unconsciously processing these messages in an instant all day, every day, every single time we see an ad. And what is an ad designed to do? It's designed to create a deficiency, and they say, and we have the product that will make it all better. It's saying to you, you don't have enough. What about social media? You know the thing online that you can like post stuff to that shows how your life really is day in and day out? People are like, well, what about be real? <laughs> the other day I saw someone, they were like, hey, 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 mom, can you take my picture? I need it for my be real. Hang on a second. Like, come on, this is not real. This is as real as anything else. And what happens when you go on a vacation with your friends or with your family or with your partner and you're like, oh, it was great. And then you come back and you open up Instagram and you're like, oh, and theirs was, theirs was better. You see, we live in a culture in the midst of this unchecked excess where we have more access to more things. And if you don't have it, after a few clicks in two hours, it'll arrive at your front door. And yet we still have this sense of we don't have enough. And this is exactly where the disciples are. We don't have enough. We can't do anything. We're powerless. But the thing I love about Jesus is he doesn't even entertain their protest for a second. Instead, he says, hey, have everyone sit down in groups of 50 and bring me whatever it is that you have. And so they give the instructions, presumably, to everyone sit down on, on the grass. And then Jesus, it says, takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it and gives it to the disciples. Which I wonder, like, how did they feel on their first trip out into the crowds? Like, they know what they gave Jesus. They're probably like, Are you, this is the worst idea ever. Hey, everybody, got some bread for you. And they hand it out to a few people, like, do you have any more? And they're like, sure, we'll be right back. And then they go back, and somehow there's more. And they go back again, and there's more, and there's more. The thing I love about this story and the way that all the gospel writers tell us is they don't really give much attention to the multiplication of the bread. They don't say, oh, this is what Jesus did. What they really give attention to is two things, what the disciples had, what the disciples distributed, and what the disciples picked up. One scholar said this is not a story about multiplication, it's a story about distribution. It's this idea that when it passed through the hands of Jesus, whatever they had actually was, well, it was more than enough. That instead of sitting on the sidelines, holding on to what they had, shaking their head, going, this is the dumbest idea ever, all of a sudden what they had, well, it made all the difference in the world. And they began to recognize that there was not only enough, there was more than enough. And it says they picked up 12 basketfuls of bread in, in leftovers after, which, like if I was Jesus, which I realize is a weird way to start a sentence, but if I was Jesus, 
The next morning, when they like open their bread baskets and start eating, I'd be like, so, where'd you get the bread? Just rubbing it in a little bit, which is, by the way, why I'm not Jesus, <laughs> and for many other reasons. But, but the thing I love about it is that the focus is actually on the disciples. It's almost like it's saying to us, Jesus couldn't have done anything without the disciples bringing what they had. Now, I suppose he could have been like waved his hand and done some like Jedi thing and been like, you're not hungry. And everyone would be like, okay. Or be filled. And everyone's like, wow. I feel like I just ate Thanksgiving dinner at my aunt's house, ready to take a nap. You know, whatever it is. He didn't do that. Jesus said to the disciples, I need what you have. Bring it to me. Then we can do something. And I wonder, like, what if God's still saying that to us? Like, I need what you have. Like, we want to just pray about something. Well, maybe you're the solution. And you're like, well, I don't have very much. Really? I feel like I've heard that story before. What if God's unable to do anything because we're unwilling to do anything? Like what, what if that's what this story is pointing toward? What if it really is a story about the miracle of distribution, the miracle of trust that the disciples had to actually take what little they had and put it in the hands of Jesus? Like what if that is actually what the story is talking about? Because if that's the case, what it's inviting all of us to, to do is consider the question, well, what do we have? And what can we, in fact, give away so that it passes through the hands of Jesus and does more than we ever thought possible. You see, one of the things I know is that we often look at these people that are doing huge things around the world and we're like, well, I'll never be able to do that. But actually what research suggests is that it didn't start when they amassed a fortune. It started before any of that with a mindset of like, no, I have enough. Because if we live with a scarcity mindset that says, I don't have enough for me, we're actually not going to be very generous people. So we're just going to say no to everything. We're going to say, I can't do anything. But if we actually see that what we have is, in fact, enough, then we're willing to give because now we realize well, we'll be fine. A few weeks ago, I was at a birthday party for a friend of mine. And um, this woman is late 50s, single about four feet, 11 inches tall. And the kind of person, most people, if you saw her, you would just kind of walk by her. The interesting thing about her, though, is she wouldn't let you walk by her. And so I show up at this birthday party, and there's people, like, everywhere. And so, of course, it was, like, the happy birthday thing. And so most of the people there I didn't know. So, like, I was like, oh, how do you, how do you know her? One person was like, oh, she snowblows all the driveways in the neighborhood and all the sidewalks anytime it snows. She's up at like four in the morning. And when we saw her doing that, we were like, who is this person? And it was interesting. It's like just that little thing. It's like kind of brought the whole neighborhood together. All of us were kind of living these disparate individual lives. And well, because of her and her snowblower, we've all become friends. I'm like, well, that's, that's awesome. Saw someone else. I was like, how do you know her? Oh, uh, I went to a restaurant alone to have dinner, and um, the, this, the hostess came and asked, just one? And she moved up next to me and said, no, there's going to be two of us, which is a bold move, is it not? <laughs> just like, 
That takes some guts. And this woman was like, okay. And she's like, we had this most amazing conversation over dinner, and she met me at a point of my great loneliness, and we've become incredible friends through this, and she's just introduced me to this whole world of people, and like my, I've never been so connected in my life. I talked to someone else, like, how do you know her? Oh, I oversee this nonprofit that serves kids who are underserved and at risk, and uh, she comes and she donates all sorts of time, and I found out that she figures out who these kids are and where they live, and I was like, oh. And then she's like, Anne will like deliver groceries and drop money off all anonymously just to make sure that they're taken care of. Story after story after story. And quite honestly, in our culture and in our world, this woman who's super tiny, four feet, 11 inches tall, single, who is a preschool teacher, well, what difference can she make? And yet, as I walked around this birthday party and talked to person after person after person, I thought, man, she, in the eyes of so many, doesn't have very much. But I could keep telling you stories about the difference that she makes in the lives of people by simply going, well, I have this, and I'll give it. Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, says this. People say, what good can one person do? What is the sense of our small efforts? They cannot see that we must lay one brick at a time, take one step at a time. We can be responsible only for one action of the present moment. But we can beg for an increase of love in our hearts that will vitalize and transform all our individual actions. And know that God will take them and multiply them just as Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. I don't know what problems you're aware of in your world, in your life, in your neighborhood, in the lives of others. But what I do know is that Jesus isn't interested in hearing all the reasons you can or won't. He's not interested in how little you have. He's simply interested in and whatever you have, and inviting all of us to say, here, here, I trust you can do something with this. So maybe as we go out today, we can simply ask the question, what is it that I have? And whatever the response to that question is, maybe the second one is, am I trusting enough and am I willing, am I willing to give it? Let's pray together. God, would you, would you cause us to see all that we do have, even if in our estimation it's nothing? And in giving us the ability to see, would you give us the trust and the courage to offer whatever it is that we have, knowing that you, you will do something with it. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends and siblings said. Amen.